Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, hey, everybody, hope you're doing well. Uh, my name is Kent. I'm one of the pastors at City Church. If you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn with me to the book of First Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. It's going to take us just a bit to get to that passage, but we will be there eventually. Um, if you are joining us for the very first time, this is the first time you've ever heard a City Church teaching, uh, welcome. We're glad that you found us, however that happened. Uh, just to catch you up, we are approaching the end of a series through the book of First Peter in the Bible. And we've said over and over again in this series that really what this book, this letter is all about is that Peter, the author, is trying to help these ancient Christians learn how to live and how to relate to the things around them in their society, to the people and systems and structures around them. And so a lot of the book is very externally focused. It's focused on how we relate to people around us in our society. But today in chapter four, Peter turns his attention towards two other things, really. In the first half of the passage that we'll cover today, he's going to talk about how we should think about our desires as followers of Jesus. And then in the second half of the passage, he's going to talk about how we relate to other followers of Jesus that we share lives with. So first half, internal desires, second half, interpersonal relationships. And what we'll find out by the end of our time in this passage today is that those two things are really not as unrelated as they might seem on the surface. But before we dive in, let's just set up this first half of our passage, which is about how we think about our desires as followers of Jesus. So you and I carry around with us a whole host of different desires on a regular basis. We have desires for things like food, for drink, for sex, for rest. We, we also have desires for more intangible things like friendship and love and acceptance. And then we have desires for even more existential sorts of things like meaning and purpose and significance. We operate with any variety of these different desires at any given time in our lives. And so a very important question for us to ask is how should we think about and how should we approach and react to those types of desires? Now, a lot of people think that being a Christian actually means just abandoning all your desire. That following Jesus looks like cutting yourself off or keeping yourself from anything that you desire at all. But believe it or not, that, that's actually not how it works, at least not according to the scriptures. You see, the Bible's perspective isn't that desire is bad. The Bible's perspective is just that desire is not ultimate. And those are actually different. A follower of Jesus believes that our desires should actually be thought about and considered and evaluated rather than them just ruling over our lives at all times. More on that as we go along today. But even that perspective, even the perspective that we should evaluate and thoughtfully consider our desires rather than letting them rule over us at all times, even that perspective puts us at odds with an awful lot of our society. 
Our society sees their desires very differently than that. So we hear phrases all the time like, treat yourself, follow your heart, pursue your dreams, the heart wants what the heart wants. These are all different ways of our society communicating that our desires shouldn't so much be thought about and evaluated and considered thoughtfully, but rather that it should just be indulged and followed at nearly all times. That desire in many ways should be king. In our lives, that if there is something we want, if there's something we desire, whatever we do, we need to listen to and fulfill and indulge that desire, that we should chase after those desires at all times. Now, if you think about it, I don't think anybody actually believes that we should respond that way to all of our desires at all times. If my desire, for instance, is that every time somebody cuts me off in traffic, my desire is to run that person off the road, pull them out of their car, and beat them up, I don't know that anybody's making the case that I should follow that desire 100% of the time. I don't know that anybody's saying that's evidence of healthy human interaction at all. Uh, If my desire is to eat nothing but double bacon cheeseburgers every single meal for the rest of my life. And let's be honest, that might be my desire. If that's my desire, I don't think anybody's making the case that it's healthy for me to always indulge that desire at all times. So if we stop to question this mentality that our society has just a little bit, I think we actually start to realize that this follow your desires at all times approach is actually far too simplistic to be helpful in every single scenario. So that all prompts the question then, what might a better approach to our desires be as followers of Jesus? It would seem that we need something a little more nuanced, a little more thoughtful than just indulge all of your desires entirely. And that's what Peter is getting at in this first part of our passage. So pick it up with me, starting in verse 1 of chapter 4. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. More on that phrase here in just a second. Verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, or we might say desires, but for the will of God. So first, as Peter has been saying through this entire letter that we've been covering, our model for how to live well as an exile is actually Jesus himself. He's our model. Whatever our approach to our desires is, it is supposed to mirror the way that Jesus himself approached his desires. We're going to come back around to that at the end of our time together. But then Peter tacks on this little phrase in the two verses that we just looked at. He then says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now that's an interesting sentence. It reads to us a little bit odd, almost like Peter is saying that once you suffer, you don't sin anymore, which to most of us who have spent much time in church at all just doesn't sound right at all. So allow me to clarify. Peter is not saying that once you endure mistreatment like these followers of Jesus did, that you literally stop sinning as a result. That word cease in this passage can also mean to restrain or to hinder. So what Peter is trying to say is that when you suffer like these Christians were suffering, when you are mistreated and maligned and excluded, and you respond to all of that by blessing the people who are mistreating you, 
that that indicates that something transformative has happened in you. It means that you have gotten to the point where, at least on some level, you have learned to start restraining your sin. And that at least that has happened in regards to how you respond to evil. That that you have hindered sin's power over you in that particular way. You've gained some sort of mastery over that particular sin. Now, obviously, it doesn't mean you don't still sin. It doesn't mean you're perfect. But it does mean that suffering has begun to refine you and your character on some level. And so Peter says that being in that place, having that process take place in you, that that enables you to, quote, live no longer for human passions, or we might say desires, or rather the, but rather for the will of God. Now, he says, as a follower of Jesus, your desires are no longer ultimate in your life. They're no longer what you live for ultimately. And that doesn't mean you don't have desires, and it doesn't even mean you ignore or suppress your desires. But it does mean that your desires don't control you anymore. They don't have the final word on what you do and don't do if you're a follower of Jesus. Rather, what has the final word on what you do and don't do is what Peter calls, quote, the will of God. So next, Peter is going to rattle off some examples of the types of things that no longer rule over us as followers of Jesus. So take a look with me, picking it back up in verse 3 of our passage. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness, orgies, you know, like you do, uh, drinking parties. Uh, Some of you are like, wait, there are other types of parties than drinking parties? Believe it or not, there are. Uh, Drinking parties and lawless idolatry. Now, this obviously is quite the list when you read through it. But if you think about it, there's a common thread that runs through all of these things that Peter just listed out, and that's indulging your desire. Every single one of these things is what happens when a person just completely gives in to their desire and has no ability to say no to it. Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, all these things are what happens when someone just gives them over, gives themselves over completely to their desire, to wherever their desire leads them. These are all examples of what life looks like when desire runs your life at all times. Peter says, hey, you've done all of this for long enough already. You no longer have to be run by your desires if you're a follower of Jesus. You no longer have to be enslaved to them. You can now rule over your desires rather than letting them rule over you. And not only that, but as a follower of Jesus, you can leverage your desires as opportunities to grow and mature as a human being and as a follower of Jesus. So let's try to make this as practical as we possibly can. Let's say, hypothetically, that the particular desire you are experiencing a lot lately is the desire for sex. I figure we're a church made up of a lot of 20 and 30-somethings. Just seemed like it might be a relevant example to bring up. Let's say that you are a single, amorous man or woman, and you've noticed that for whatever reason, lately, the desire to sleep with someone is just very strong in your life. So when you realize that, when you discover that desire in you, there are a couple ways that you could respond to that desire. 
One way you could respond is that you could say, I have a desire for sex, so let me fulfill that desire. So let me invite the boyfriend or the girlfriend over. Let's put on a movie and see what happens. Or maybe it's let me hop on Tinder or another dating app real quick, see what's going on there. Maybe it's to go look at porn or whatever the particular response is for you. And the line of thinking, though, with all of those types of responses is, I have a desire for sex, so let me take the easiest and fastest route to indulge that desire. That's to operate on the basis of believing that your desire is king, that your desire is ultimate, that you have no choice as a human being but to fulfill your desire. That's as deep as that thinking goes. But if you're a follower of Jesus, I think your response looks a little bit different. It means you have the ability through the Holy Spirit not just to blindly follow your desires, but to zoom out for a second and consider why those desires are there in the first place. It gives you the ability to evaluate not just what can be done about my desires, but actually what should be done about them. So you're able to go, okay, for whatever reason, I've got a lot of pent-up sexual desire going on in my life right now. Let me ask the question, why might that be? And maybe it's because life just seems super boring right now, and it seems like sex will bring some excitement into the picture. Maybe it's because you feel super lonely right now, and it seems like sex will alleviate some of that loneliness, at least on some level. Or maybe it's that life is super stressful for you right now, and sex seems like it will bring at least a little bit of comfort or a little bit of distraction from that stress. Or maybe it's as simple as just... You've been watching a lot of shows that talk about sex and depict a lot of sex, and it's making you think about sex far more often and desire it far more than you usually do. But any of those things, regardless of what you conclude about why that desire is there, all of those things are opportunities for deeper reflection as a result. So all of a sudden, you've actually let your desire become a doorway into reflection and transformation. You've let it become an opportunity for growth and character development as a human being, rather than it just being an itch that needs to be scratched. I would argue that is a far more helpful and, to be honest, far more enlightened way to think about our desires. And I want you to see that is actually not the same thing as ignoring or suppressing your desires. It's not the same thing. That's not the same as a single person saying, I want sex. The Bible says sex is wrong outside of marriage, so no sex for me. I think that's how a lot of non-Christians think that Christians approach their desire, but it's actually not how we're called to approach our desire at all. We don't just suppress our desires. We let our desires become opportunities for growth with the help of the Holy Spirit. But you've got to first receive and practice the ability through the Holy Spirit to get up above your desires for a second and see them from a different perspective. Now, as good as all of that may sound to some of us who are followers of Jesus, Peter also acknowledges that living this way might bring us some unwanted consequences as a result. So look with me at verse 4 of our passage. It says, with respect to this, they, meaning those who don't live the same way that we do as followers of Jesus, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So Peter says, if people around you notice that you don't just instinctively indulge in your desires like they do, they may not like it. They may not be a fan of that approach. 
They might be confused by it even. And as a result, they may mistreat you. They might malign you because they think you're judging them for their lifestyle or their choices. Now, really quickly, I think it's worth saying that sometimes when the world thinks that we're judging them, it's because we are. Sometimes Christians are so incredibly guilty of this. We side-eye people that live differently than we do. We talk condescendingly to them. We make these passive-aggressive comments about the world. Sometimes when people think we're judging them, it's because we are actually judging them. And those attitudes in us as followers of Jesus need to be owned and acknowledged and repented of, to be sure. But other times, you might not be judging your friend or your coworker or your non-Christian neighbor at all, and they still feel like you are judging them. I once knew a guy that had been dating his girlfriend for about a year and a half. They'd been living together since early on in their relationship. And, and every time I would talk to him, anytime the topic of them living together would come up casually in conversation, he would stop for a second and go, and yeah, I know you probably think that we're sinners going to hell because we live together, but, and then he would enter back into the conversation. Now, what was funny about that is I had never said a single word to him about the fact that they live together. I'd never indicated any disapproval whatsoever because he was a non-Christian. I didn't have any expectations that he would live like a Christian if he wasn't one. But what was happening there is it didn't matter what I said or didn't say to him, he felt threatened, he felt judged simply because he knew I had a different moral and ethical framework for those sorts of things than he did. He felt judged just by me saying nothing at all. And I'm sure a lot of us have probably experienced something like that in our life as a follower of Jesus, where someone had that sort of sensitivity towards you simply because they just knew you disagreed with them or their lifestyle, even if you never said anything judgmental to them. Maybe you were even called something like holier than thou or a prude or self-righteous by them. And again, maybe that's because you were being one of those things in that moment, but other times it might have just been because people knew you approached things, thought about things differently than they did, just because they got a hint that you don't approach your desires in the same way that they approach theirs. Peter says, hey, that, that's going to happen if you're a follower of Jesus. Don't be alarmed. Don't be caught off guard when people respond in that way to you not approaching your desires the way that they do. But, Peter says, picking it back up in verse 5, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So Peter says, even if they malign you as a result of all of this, even if they mistreat you, even if they feel threatened by you, he says, they will give an account to the one who judges the living and the dead. Now, maybe that sentence sounds rather intense to you, but I'll tell you, that reality is actually one of the most beautiful, practically helpful things for us to know as followers of Jesus. Because think about it like this. If God is ultimately the one responsible for judging people at the end of history, that means you and I don't need to. You and I don't have to worry about making sure that non-Christians know that we disapprove of them because that's not our job to do. That's God's job. So that means you and I can interact with people who don't know Jesus judgment-free. Listen, whenever a non-believer encounters a Christian that truly believes in the judgment of God, what they should encounter in that person is an incredibly non-judgmental presence. 
Because that person doesn't believe it's their job to judge non-Christians. That person knows that that's ultimately God's job. And that sets them free to interact with that non-Christian with love and acceptance and grace. Because they know God will take care of everything else. So then Peter says, don't allow people speaking evil against you to discourage how you live as a follower of Jesus. Don't let that discourage you. He says, persist in following Jesus, persist in doing what's right, and let them say whatever they want to say. Peter says, knowing that God will one day set all things right should set you free as a follower of Jesus. And then Peter's going to get into specifically what it sets you free to do instead. So take a look back in verse 7 with me in our passage. It says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So Peter says, here's how you should live since the end of all things is at hand. So I think it must be because I'm a pastor, but I've had quite a few people lately tell me, or at least ask me, if all this coronavirus stuff is a sign of the end of the world. I guess something about this whole thing just feels a little bit apocalyptic, and so I've had several people want to know if it truly is. And my response to them has usually just been some version of, I don't know, probably not, possibly, maybe. I honestly have no clue. And I think people are usually surprised at how nonchalant my answer is to something like that as a pastor. But there's a couple of reasons that I respond that way. There's a couple of reasons that the answer to that question doesn't bother me all, of, all that much. One is that the scriptures actually say that no one knows when all of that is going to happen. No one knows when the end of the world is coming. There's actually one passage where Jesus says that he himself doesn't know when that's going to happen. So to me, it just seems kind of pointless to speculate on something that the Bible says not to speculate about and that Jesus himself apparently doesn't even know the answer to. In general, I like to think of myself as just a little bit less smart than Jesus. But the other reason is that repeatedly in the scriptures, when it describes how we should live when we know the end of the world is at hand, it simply says that we should continue doing the same things that we were already doing. So practically speaking, the answer to that question, is this the end of the world, doesn't actually have that big of an impact on what we do or don't do or what we're called to do at the end of the day. And so over and over again in the scriptures, it just says, hey, if the end of all things is at hand, if the end is coming soon, you should keep doing what you were already doing. And if there's any change, it should just be that you do those things more frequently and more persistently. So the Bible's perspective is not that when we know Jesus is coming back, we all of a sudden shift into like phase two of our operation. No, it just says keep doing the things that you are already called to do as followers of Jesus. And I think this passage in 1 Peter is a perfect example of that mentality. Because Peter says, here's how you should live when the end of all things is at hand. Are you guys ready for how crazy these instructions are? 
It says you should be self-controlled and sober-minded, which, just to let you know, those are instructions that we receive all through the New Testament, whether the end of all things is at hand or not. And catch how crazy these instructions are, that if the end of all things is at hand, we should love one another, show hospitality to one another, and serve one another. Not all that crazy of instructions, right? So nothing about hiding in underground bunkers, nothing about marching around with AK-47s on your shoulder, no conspiracy theorizing, just, hey guys, keep loving, keep serving, keep showing hospitality. That's how we're called to live when the end of all things is at hand. So let's just spend a few minutes on each of those, just to make sure we understand what Peter is instructing us to do exactly, especially because I think for each of these, some of us might need to do some unlearning and some relearning about what they mean exactly. So first, Peter says that we should love one another earnestly. We should love one another. So I think we've mentioned this at least a few times on a Sunday teaching, but love in the Bible is actually very different from love as we often think of it. So love to most of us is an emotion or a feeling. If I say I love something or someone, usually what I mean is that that person or that thing makes me feel a certain way. But love in the Bible is not so much an emotion as it is a decision. It's to prefer another person above yourself in tangible sorts of ways, regardless of how you feel about them in that particular moment. So when Anna and I were dating, I had a personal goal that I didn't want to say I love you to her until I had proven that with my actions. I didn't want to say those words in our relationship until I had shown her that I loved her through serving her, preferring her above myself, and putting her above myself. My my goal was that when I finally said I love you to Anna, that her response to that would be, yeah, I know you do. You've shown me that you love me already. Now, maybe to you that feels like it takes all the fun out of saying I love you in a romantic relationship, and that's understandable, but that was my way of trying to embody this biblical picture of what love is, rather than just having it be the romantic type of love. And even if that seems significantly less meaningful to you, I'll say this, uh, in my opinion, one of the biggest problems in marriage after marriage in our society today is that people don't know what to do when the romantic type of love fades away. People don't know what to do when they don't feel in love with their spouse anymore. So maybe we would all be better served to infuse our romantic relationships with a little bit more of this biblical picture of love, preferring another person regardless of our feelings. And, and infuse all of our relationships, not just the romantic kind, with that sort of love as well. So, when Peter instructs these Christians to, quote, keep loving one another earnestly, he is not necessarily telling us to have fond feelings towards one another, although that is a great thing to have at times. Rather, he is encouraging us to have this unflinching resolve towards one another. To have this unwavering commitment of seeking the good of other people above ourselves. To look out for them more than we look out for ourselves. And then the second thing he says to do is to, quote, show hospitality towards one another. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, when you hear the word hospitality, 
I need you to do your best to get all things Martha Stewart and Paula Dean out of your head, okay? Anything that's a perfectly manicured home or like the best recipe you could ever find, all of that is great. If that's your interest, if that's what you're into, go for it. But just so we understand, that's Southern hospitality, not necessarily biblical hospitality. Biblical hospitality is pretty simple in theory. It most literally means the love of strangers, the love of strangers. So it's not so much about how good you are at welcoming people you already know over to your house as it is about how persistent you are at welcoming people you don't yet know into your life. It's about welcoming people you don't yet know into your everyday life. So imagine a scenario with me. There's a get-together at someone's house. There's about 20, 30 people there. Some of you are like, what does that even look like? I've forgotten what it feels like to go over to somebody's house. We'll just try to remember back like three or four months to when we did that. So there's a get-together at somebody's house. And and once you show up, it becomes obvious that at this particular get-together, probably 90% of the people there all know each other. They're all friends. They're all super comfortable around one another. They feel super at home at this particular gathering. But all of a sudden, you look over in one corner and you see that there's maybe one person, two people, three people that are kind of over there off to themselves. And it becomes very obvious that they don't know most of the people at this party. And they actually feel very uncomfortable. Maybe they got invited by a friend or a neighbor or whatever. They don't know a ton of the people there. Okay, in that scenario, hospitality is the eagerness with which you go and take it upon yourself to make those people off in the corner feel like they belong there. That's biblical hospitality. That's at least a picture of it. We have defined hospitality before as a church family as making an outsider feel like an insider. That's what hospitality is. It's it's the degree to which you make excluded people feel included. That's what Peter is getting at in this passage. And remember, these followers of Jesus were living in a setting where they were being steadily rejected by the world around them that didn't understand them. So the type of hospitality that created this type of belonging among the family of God was absolutely crucial during this time period. It made people feel like there was one group of people at least that they could feel safe with. And then lastly, Peter mentions that we should, quote, use our gifts to serve one another. Use our gifts to serve one another. So most commentators actually think that this is a nod here to the so-called spiritual gifts in the Bible. So just about a year ago, we actually did an entire series on the Holy Spirit. And within that series were three whole weeks on the gifts from the Spirit. So if you're curious about how all of those work and what they are and what they look like exactly, you may want to go back, find that on our website, listen to that three-part series. And since we did that in depth in that series, since we covered those things in depth then, I'm not going to unpack it all in detail again today. But one of the things that we mentioned in that series that Peter highlights again in this passage in 1 Peter is what the gifts are for in the first place. And I think that's worth us reviewing really quickly because this is where so many people get so off in their understanding of what the gifts are. So the primary purpose of gifts according to the Bible, is to serve others with them. That's the primary purpose, which means the primary purpose of the gifts is not simply to express them. 
Now, maybe to you that difference sounds relatively minor, but I can promise you it is not a minor difference at all. Because if the primary purpose of the gifts is to express them, if it's just to express them in any particular way, what that means is that I have this gift or this set of gifts, and it is everyone else's job to create an environment in which I can express those gifts. In essence, it's everyone else's job to serve me in that way by providing that type of environment for me and my gifts. But if the purpose of the gifts is rather to serve others, well, then it is my job to discern the needs of the people around me and then to use my gifting or maybe even pray for the type of gifting that's required to meet those needs in the people around me. So do you see how these two postures, these two understandings of the gifts are actually very different? They're night and day. They, they create polar opposite postures as a result. One asks others to serve you, and, and the other one looks for opportunities to serve others. They're actually very, very different. Far too many people see it as the church's job to orient itself around them and their giftings. That's not the mindset that Peter lays out in this passage. The gifts are given so that you might serve others with them. Which brings us full circle back to where Peter started this whole line of thought in verse 7 of our passage. With the idea of loving or preferring others to yourself. That's the thread that runs through all three of the things we just mentioned. So to love others requires putting them ahead of yourself. To show hospitality towards others requires putting those people ahead of your own comfort and preferences. And to serve others requires seeing those people's needs as more important than just expressing your gifts. Love is actually the theme behind all three of these things. And as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 13, love does not insist on its own way. So in a way, that actually connects us back to the very beginning of this entire passage. Because we started off in this passage talking about how followers of Jesus are called to relate to their desires. And we said that instead of always indulging our every desire, instead of insisting on our own way, so to speak, we are called to submit those desires to Jesus and his kingdom. That's how we respond to our desires, and that's how we learn to love one another. And in verse 1, it says that all of this happens through us, quote, arming ourselves with the same way of thinking that Jesus himself had. So to wrap things up, I want us to just look at a passage where Jesus did, in fact, arm himself with this way of thinking about his desires. I want us to take a look at Matthew 26. So in this passage, Jesus is just hours away from dying on the cross, and he has taken his disciples to a garden called Gethsemane to pray. And while the disciples are sort of standing watch off to the side, we actually get a look into the content of Jesus's prayer in this moment. So we're just going to look at one verse, Matthew 26, verse 39, which says this. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So what we're witnessing in this passage is a very honest moment in the life of Jesus. With his brutal execution just around the corner, he prays with this heavy heart to God, and he says to the Father, Father, if there's any other way for us to accomplish what we're accomplishing right now other than the cross, let's do that. So 
Don't miss this. In this moment, Jesus' desires are in conflict, for lack of a better word, are in conflict, at least on some level, with the Father's desires. Now, I, I know that's really hard for us to even wrap our minds around something like that. Because we all know that the Father and the Son's purposes are always in unison. They're, they're always unified in their thinking. But in some way, it would seem that in this moment, Jesus is wishing that there were another way to go about that unified purpose. And notice that in that moment, when he comes face to face with that reality, he, he doesn't just say, well, that's my desire, but desire isn't important, so I'll just get over it. That's not Jesus' approach. Instead, he says, God, here is my desire, here is my will, and at the same time, I am submitting that desire to you. Not my will, God, but yours be done. Do you see how this is a model for how we respond to our desires? And specifically, how we submit those desires to God. Jesus didn't even exempt himself from this approach to his desire. He modeled it for us. And through what he would go on to do on the cross next, right after this story, on our behalf, Jesus has actually imparted to us the ability to approach our desires in that same way. In moments where our desires are in conflict with God's, we have the ability through the Holy Spirit to approach them like Jesus did in this passage. Where we can say, God, this right here is what I want. This is the direction that my desires are pointing in. This is what I want. And at the same time, life is not ultimately about what I want. It's about what you want. Not my will, but yours, God. And it's through that process that we get to live in the words of 1 Peter, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Just like Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, we get to say, God, not my will, but yours be done. That's what life is truly about. So let's pray and ask for his help in all of this. Father, we thank you that you are utterly unique. God, you are so different than we are. And so, God, as we navigate this conversation about our desires and how we should think about our desires, we just want to start by saying that we want to honor you with them, whatever that looks like. And, God, at the same time, we, we want to acknowledge that that's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy because everything in our flesh says fulfill our every desire, chase after it with everything we've got. And then to add to that, the world around us tells us that that is always exclusively the right thing to do. And so, God, we need your help. God, we need you to teach us. We need you to enlighten us. We need you to give us, through the Holy Spirit, the ability to, to zoom out and, and to look at our desires on a higher plane where we see this, them as opportunities for growth and transformation and not just a knee-jerk response to indulge whatever desire we experience. And so, God, we, we want to ask that you would help us to, uh, as this passage says, to, to hinder, to restrain sin's grip over us, and that we would do that through the power that you've made possible through your life, death, and resurrection. And, God, we ask this for your, 
your glory, for our good, that you would change us, that you would transform us, and ultimately, God, that you would help us to point others to who you are by how we think about, how we approach our desires, and how we love one another. We ask this in your name. Amen.